Welcome you back. Hour number two of the Bill Michaels Show. Getting away from some of the Brewers chatter. We'll get back into it. I know there's some Brewers fans that, uh, on one hand, are a little bit panicked about what's going on, and on the other, are sitting back and saying, just, just relax. Take it easy. Things are going to be okay. Don't worry. Don't freak out at this point. But got to talk a little Packers uh, football. And uh, joining us now over on the uh, over on the hotline, Andy Herman, Packaday Podcast. You can find his stuff at Andy Herman NFL. Now joining us on the hotline, Andy. How you doing, man? Hey, Bill. Doing great. Thanks so much. It's been too long. So, you, what do you think? What do you think regarding the Packers when it comes to the NFL draft? There's a lot of speculation about what they're going to do early. What's going to be there early for them in the draft? Give me your thoughts. Yeah, I sort of expect Green Bay to be very Green Bay about this, and that's very common, best player available, and I know that's cliche, and I know that's lame, and I know it's probably not what a lot of Packer fans want to hear. I think they would you know, probably freak out a little bit if they don't hear a wide receiver on day one, which I still think is very, very possible, but I also know this is a franchise that has gone from Ron Wolf to Ted Thompson to Brian Gutekunst, and they have a pretty specific formula on what they look for, what they value. They value premium position players, generally quarterbacks, offensive tackles, defensive linemen, edge rusher, corner early in the draft. They'll go outside of that if they need to and if it's still the best player. Those are the sort of, sort of players they look at, usually younger players with high athleticism. I think that's probably what they're going to do, and they know that they have five picks in the top 100. I think if you look at their type for wide receivers, it wouldn't shock me if they felt that their best value for wide receiver in this draft was more near the second round and maybe not so much the first round. So I expect this to be a very Packers draft and to kind of stick to their profile and to take whoever they think is going to be best for their football team, both now and long term. What uh, what do you think that because I I get the sense that you got to go up and get one of the top five, six wide receivers. Do you think they make a deal for that or do you think because I think if you're going to do that, you jump up with one of your picks in the first round, get that top wide receiver that you know is going to be an impact player and then let the rest of the board fall to you? Or do you think they're just going to sit back, relax and do nothing? You know, nothing would surprise me, and especially because, you know, as much as I just said that they have a formula for everything, you know, Green Bay's had a formula for just about everything for a long time, and we're well past the state of normal for the Packers right now. Obviously, going far into the future salary caps to pay players, giving control to a player like Aaron Rodgers to trade for a guy like Randall Cobb. Like, they're just not totally within their normal mindset of how they normally do things. So, you know, moving up in the draft and getting a wide receiver, I still think is within the realm of possibility. I think where I struggle is that, again, and not to, to nerd out too much here, but what Green Bay really looks for is that you know they're going to want a receiver that can play the outside. They don't need a slot guy. Randall Cobb's a slot. Amari Rodgers is a slot. Alan Lazard spent 40% of his time in the slot. They don't really need that. They need an outside wide receiver. Um, they generally want players that are younger in age in the draft so that they can really develop them. They usually want guys that are going to be able to block fairly aggressively or at least decently on the outside within this Matt LaFleur system. Like there's specific traits that they look for. They very much value high-end athleticism. I just go through some of the top receivers in this draft. Yes, a Drake London would potentially make some sense. But Chris Olave, not a blocker, not a yards after catch guy, not usually up to their physical profile and clearly could be gone by the time that they pick. You know, um, Jahan Dotson, same thing, not their size profile. There's just so many wide receivers, even if they go up, like Garrett Wilson, same thing, very undersized for what Green Bay normally looks for. I struggle to look at a receiver in this draft, especially early, even with those top four or five guys, and say, all right, that's an ideal, perfect fit for Green Bay. I think Drake London might be the closest, but even he has a couple things where you look at and say, all right, maybe there's a reason Green Bay wouldn't go in that direction. 
There's a lot of edge rushers available, and one of the things that the Packers could use is an edge rusher and or a depth at edge rusher. Uh, is there anybody in particular you're looking at going, this guy might be impactful with the Packers? Yeah, very much so. Probably the player in the first round that maybe seems to fit the most for what Green Bay likes is George Karlaftis uh, out of Purdue. Edge rusher, extremely high athletic profile, had great productivity. You know, we talk about, you know, potentially Aiden Hutchinson going first overall in the draft. Well, both played in the Big Ten. Aiden Hutchinson had a 25.4% pass rush win rate. And George Karloftis was right there with him. Same exact pass rush win rate. Had great success as a pass rusher. He fits usually their size profile. We know they like a little bit of bigger players. I know a lot of people are saying maybe like he would fit better as like a 4-3 end. Well, a lot of people said the same thing about Rashawn Gary. He just fits exactly what they've sort of looked at at that um, specific position. Uh, Size, speed. The only thing that would be a question mark potentially is his arm length, which is shorter than what they normally like. But uh, everything else he hits to a T. We talk about age. He just turned 21 years old. Um, literally everything you look at except for arm length, he hit, he has exactly what they're looking for. If he's there at 22, um, I would not be surprised at all if that's the pick. Uh, defensive line. I, now, it's not a popular pick by many, but I, I think this team could probably use a little extra depth at the defensive line. Uh, is there anybody there that you're looking at saying this guy later in the rounds might not be a bad way to go? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the interesting things about the defensive line is obviously Kenny Clark gives you a lot of versatility, right? I know the top two guys in this draft, Jordan Davis, Devontae Wyatt. Davis probably gone by the time they pick. Devontae Wyatt could be there. But I think the nice thing is Kenny Clark, if you need him to be your more, you know, nose tackle, run stuffing guy, and you want to add a Devontae Wyatt next to him and have him be more of the gap penetrating pass rush specialist, you can do that. If you want Kenny Clark to be a little bit more of the pass rusher, he's never going to be that, you know, quick twitch guy that just gets past you like an Aaron Donald, but he can certainly live within that realm as well. If you want to add a Jordan Davis type player next to him, you can do that as well. I think it gives them a lot of versatility. Why it's interesting. He's a little bit overaged for the position probably would be there. You know, he's going to turn 24 or just turn 24 in March, excuse me, uh, but extremely um capable of penetrating into the backfield shoot gaps i mean every defensive line coach and every defensive coach right now is looking for that type of player this isn't the old nfl where you're necessarily looking for those edge rushers to just immediately bend around the edge the geometry is a little bit different with so many teams playing in the shotgun the quickest way from point a to point b from a disruption standpoint is right over garter center being able to win quickly a very aaron donald-esque and Devonte wyatt has a lot of that skill whether, again, they would go in that direction is interesting. But I do think that we, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier, Green Bay may be going outside of their preferences a little bit. You know, they've always taken these 20, 21, 22-year-old guys. Well, it's, it sounds great, but they're not in a situation to develop players either. And if they realize, you know what, guys like Devontae Wyatt or maybe a Devin Lloyd at linebacker, yeah, they're 24 years old, but guess what? Those guys are going to be able to come in and step in right away and play with this team that's competing for a Super Bowl right now. With an Aaron Rodgers window that's two to three years left, you know, that might seem very attractive to them as well. Do you see, like, say, one of the offensive linemen, if they fall, you got to get a Trevor Penning out of Northern Iowa. You get a guy like Charles Cross out of Mississippi State. One of those tackles, because they need a tackle. So do you see if one of those tackles fall where it could be kind of a jaw-dropping moment, but they end up going in the, in the way of a tackle versus, say, a wide receiver in the first round? No, I like the way you're thinking, and I think that's very much within the realm of possibility. Again, those are the exact type of players that Green Bay would like to use in the first round, again, those premium position players. And I think, you know, it's easy to say, you know what, 
they're going to have David Bakhtiari at left tackle. And, you know, they could probably put Yash at right tackle until maybe Elton comes back. And then you could put Elton Jenkins at right tackle and just say, hey, we've got David Bakhtiari and Elton Jenkins for the foreseeable future. You know, why would you need a, a first round offensive tackle? But Man, David Bakhtiari coming off an ACL where he's missed over a year. There's got to at least be some level of concern there. Elton Jenkins coming off a torn ACL. You know, Yash was good, but I don't think he was quite as good as what maybe people expect or you know, are kind of thinking when they think back of his play. Still struggled at times with consistency. And yeah, it, the other thing too is like one of the real skills of this offensive line and one of the great aspects of it since Matt LaFleur came in it has been their versatility. And, you know, they lose a Lucas Patrick um, who has had the ability to play center and guard. Elton Jenkins is out for the first part of the season. And even if you put him in at right tackle, you can say like that's going to be a spot. You lose all of his versatility there. Billy Turner's gone. He could play everywhere pretty much outside of center. That versatility is gone. So yeah, if you get an offensive lineman that you can play at right tackle and then eventually get that versatility back with Elton Jenkins to be able to play wherever is needed. I think that's still a strength within this team. And the more depth that you can have and more talent you can have on this offensive line, the better. And sneakily, offensive line last year was a big step down from what they were in 2020. I still think they can use a, a lot of um, additional talent and depth along the line. Talking with Andy Herman of the Packaday Podcast. You can find him at Andy Herman NFL over on Twitter. Now, uh, word comes out, Aaron Rodgers probably not going to be at the offseason workouts. And I had posted this morning, I said, look, that's fine. I mean, he's earned that right. He's kind of the matrix going to the line of scrimmage. But if you're bringing in one, two, or even three new wide receivers, this whole thing about trust, about getting on the same page, those workouts are the ones where all of those things, those relationships are established. Is Rodgers right or wrong in doing that? Yeah, I think, you know, probably somewhere in the middle, right? There's always that gray area. Like you said, he certainly earned the right. And, you know, last year it worked out pretty well with him having an MVP season after not attending those. So um, I certainly understand his prerogative on it. And like, like you said, he, he certainly has earned that ability. But, you know, we've also seen, you know, guys like Tom Brady and, and some of these other quarterbacks who are consistently working with their receivers in the offseason, not just at OTAs and minicamps, but working on the side. And again, maybe that, maybe that stuff's happening and we just don't know about it. Um, but you know, whether it's there, whether it's mini camps, whether it's OTAs, I do think those are valuable reps. And especially when you talk about a quarterback with Aaron Rodgers, where he has such high demands for his wide receivers. I mean, MBS last year said that there's two offenses in Green Bay. There's Matt LaFleur's offense that you have to learn. And then there's Aaron Rodgers offense that you have to learn. You know, multiple wide receivers have talked about in the past where Rodgers will throw out an audible from seven years ago. Well, Randall Cobb is going to be the only guy left that knows uh, exactly what that means. But just learning the audibles, learning the timing, learning what Aaron Rodgers expects and the demands that he has for his wide receivers. I do think that stuff is important. And I do think some of that potentially gets lost, but I also think Jason Brabel um, had a great comment on it today and saying like when these new receivers come in, you know, at those rookie mini camps, OTAs, mini camps, like their, their head is swimming so much from just trying to learn the playbook originally that they have enough to go through just in that capacity before Aaron Rodgers starts throwing stuff at them. So I do think there could potentially be some advantage of, hey, let's just learn the basics first and then we'll get thrown into the deep end once training camp starts. So going through this draft, I mean, obviously they got numerous picks and I keep thinking that if they're going to make a trade, they're probably going to make it right before the draft. So they kind of know what their board's going to look like, how many picks they're going to have. Do you see them bringing in a veteran wide receiver? 
I don't know that I necessarily see it happening prior to the draft. I think we've sort of reached the phase now of the offseason where everyone's just kind of sitting tight and seeing what happens in the draft and what players are available. Now, if all of a sudden a player becomes available like a Terry McLaurin or a DK Metcalf, um, I can guarantee you that the team that's trading one of those players is going to want to have picks from this draft as compensation so that they can start rebuilding in whatever you know capacity they want to. So, you know, if all of a sudden that happens and Green Bay is obviously going to have to get involved in those conversations beforehand. But I just think we've reached the point where if there's going to be trades, I think probably the it's going to be, like you said earlier, moving up in the draft. And that could easily happen on draft day, depending on who's still available. And then I think we're going to see another real round of free agency after the draft with guys like Jarvis Landry and Sammy Watkins and Julio Jones and maybe Odell Beckham. And I think you'll see those guys start to get, you know, eaten up pretty quickly right after the draft for teams that didn't get what they were expecting in the draft from a wide receiver standpoint. Again, talking with Andy Herman, Packet A Podcast at Andy Herman NFL. So draft night, uh, going to be, because we're planning a draft show like everybody is, and I always think to myself that there's not going to be much fireworks. It's going to be same old, same old regarding the Packers, and you're saying pretty much expect very bland, very, very Packer-esque Thursday night on the first round of the draft and, and no fireworks, huh? Well, I think maybe that's myself either tempering expectations or just, uh, you know, learning learning over the years exactly what Green Bay tends to do in these situations. And listen, it's, it's panned out more often than not. But you know, either way, we're going to get through, again, the, the first two days of this draft, Thursday and Friday, with the likelihood that Green Bay's either selected five new players for their roster in the first 100 picks or that they've moved up aggressively and done some crazy stuff, whether that's trading for veterans or moving up in the draft further. So uh, either way, it should be a, you know, sort of Christmas morning sort of feel with unwrapping a lot of presents for Packer fans regardless of what happens after those first two days of the draft Andy good stuff we'll get you on as the draft draws near and then uh, even after the fact I appreciate it okay can't wait thanks so much Bill all right buddy talk to you later there you go Andy Herman Packaday podcast joining us for a couple of minutes on the uh, on the hotline and glad to have him on board and uh, I still feel that there's going to be a trade I, that's just my sense. I feel that there's going to be a, a move made, at, like he said, ahead of time, because those teams that are going to trade away some of those guys are going to want to start the rebuild uh, of their team almost immediate. So you want those draft choices this year, not necessarily next year. So what will the Packers do? What do you think they're going to do? Uh, the other question I asked him, and I'm going to ask you this now, Aaron Rodgers, the story comes out, he is not not going to be at uh, the, uh, at least according to reports, that he is not going to be at uh, the uh, the voluntary offseason program. He's not going to be there. He's not going to be there to work out. He's going to do his own thing, which, again, the guy's the matrix. Comes to the line of scrimmage, deciphers defenses. He can got it. He's got it. He doesn't need it. But to build a relationship with the guys around him that might be new, that's kind of where that begins these camps especially for the young guys or the new guys it's where that foundation for that type of relationship is built so do you think he's wrong as andy mentioned look tom brady he's at everything as a matter of fact he's getting guys together off season to go work out remember when he was getting guys together at a high school to go work out a little bit different 877-867-1670, 877-867-1670. Hit us up. Want to know your opinion on all of this, right or wrong? Uh, I find it interesting. Stay tuned. More of the Bill Michael Show next.
Ready. This is the Bill Michael Show on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Welcome back. Bill Michaels show hour number three. And uh, we've got all kinds of breaking news uh, earlier today. And uh, we're just uh, kind of bringing you into this in case you did not know there was at least 10 people shot and several injured in a New York City subway in Brooklyn. Uh, it happened about two miles away from the Barclays Center. The Nets uh, scheduled to play at home tonight against the Cavaliers. Uh, they also found some undetonated devices in the subway system. Uh, I don't have a lot of details regarding this, but uh, New York obviously, uh, you know, kind of locking down that area, kind of locking down right now. But that's a developing story. And now this, as the... Uh, investigation into the Washington Commanders has hit an all-time low when it comes to what we see behind closed doors, that Daniel Snyder not only underreported ticket revenue per the investigation, but he raised prices and categorized surplus revenue as bogus licensing fees related to concerts, college football games, to prevent uh, sharing with other owners. He was lying to owners about his revenue He was lying to others, uh, his fan base, uh, about the ability to collect and get refunds or get back their licensing fees. He was stealing basically from um, he was stealing basically from those fan season ticket holders that had passed away, and their families were trying to get the money back. He uh, kept that money. Um, So these two big stories. Uh, breaking one somewhat non-sports related, but ten people shot in New York in the subway system. Undetonated devices, as they're calling it, uh, were found down there as well. I don't have all the details on that. I apologize, but uh, that's been some breaking news along the way. And then this story about the Washington Commanders and uh, this being a part of um, you know the Congress, uh, the House of Representatives, and the Committee on Oversight and Reform getting this twenty-page letter today that basically outlines all the deception of the Washington commanders, including the NFL's unwillingness to work with them regarding the investigation into a hostile work environment for women. Just about as bad as bad can be for Daniel Snyder. Um, Between Stephen Ross talking to a head coach and trying to get his team to lose and Daniel Snyder cooking the books, stealing from fans, and stealing from other owners. Uh, if the NFL, uh, where, where, to me, where the hell is Roger Goodell? Uh, Roger Goodell has to come to a microphone and begin to explain this, and other owners have to come to microphones and begin to explain this. This whole thing about, well, we can't talk about it. It's an ongoing investigation. I get it, but you got to have an opinion on some of this stuff. You got to lead your sentence with if this is true then fill in the blank. It it's it's deplorable. You're literally stealing from your fans. And it's being condoned by the governing body that is the NFL. It's awful. 
Awful. Numerous interviews, former employees, executives, all say this is what was going on. Anybody that was on the inner circle with Daniel Snyder, it was because they were doing yeoman's work when it came to being deceptive and stealing and such. Uh, just and again, I haven't read this whole twenty-page letter yet, but it just I I start to go through it and look at excerpts, and it's amazing. Uh, they converted security pot deposits into non-shareable revenue by lying. Um, it, it just I, I'm I'm stunned by all of this. I guess I shouldn't be, but I am. I am. The U.S. House uh, Oversight and Reform Committee exploring potential financial improprieties with the Washington Commanders Organization. The committee now wants a federal agency to get involved. According to the Washington Post, the committee sent the 20-page letter to the Federal Trade Commission regarding allegations that the team is withholding as much as $5 million in refundable deposits from season ticket holders. $5 million from season ticket holders. And that the team is hiding cash. That was to be shared by the rest of the NFL franchises. Former Washington employee Jason Friedman, who spent nearly a quarter century with the organization, tells the committee that the team kept two sets of books. That's true. The process of intentionally allocating revenue to the wrong event was known. It was known as juice with the team, allegedly spreading revenue that should have been shared with the rest of the league to non-NFL events at FedEx Field. And as bad as that sound, it's, sounds, it's separate from an alleged scam to keep security deposits from all the season ticket holders, including those who have passed away and their families. I, it, it, it reminds people right now, as they put it in this story, that uh, the rebate controversy that resulted in a multi-year investigation into the Pilot Flying J truck stop company, which was previously owned and operated by the Browns owner, Jimmy Haslam, who somehow avoided prosecution in that case. If this evidence now is accurate and persuasive, the members of the commander's organization may have to worry about indictments, including owner Daniel Snyder. Uh, example of how they juice things. They practice allegedly worked. Uh, Freeman told the committee that they, they falsely processed $162,360 in commander's ticket revenue as arising from the Navy Notre Dame game at FedEx Field. Uh, the team's former chief financial officer, Stephen Choi, allegedly directed Freeman to do it this way in May 6th of 2014. So this is two sets of books, he said. So in this particular case, there are two sets of books that submitted to the NFL. The one day they don't look at it includes $162,000. But then there's another set of books that's kept internally to show Mr. Snyder and Mr. Snyder's, I believe, just Mr. Snyder, uh, actually, they say, and the people on the inner circle, maybe that shows what we actually did, which would include the $162,000 worth of juice, as he puts it. So they would take these, the revenue, they would convert it into something. They would take a, a portion of money and convert it into, say, revenue from the Army Army Notre Dame game or the Navy Notre Dame game and say, no, that money's from there. That's money that we can keep. You don't get that. And they would do this on the regular. 
they would change the books basically, and then one would be in house that they all would know where the money's coming from, and then the out of house book is the one they showed to the NFL and the rest of the world to say, no, no, we made money on this event. Here's where the money is. We don't owe the NFL anything. Basically, stealing from the other owners. Wow. Just uh, and it just kills me that you know season ticket holders pass away, and they refuse to refund the money and the seat licensing money to the families or make it so difficult they just give up. I, I That's incomprehensible. That's incomprehensible. Um, Dave says nothing on the ESPN site at all. It, it will be. It, it will be. You can just Google it, and now you can see it. Pro Football Talk's got a big sport, uh, uh, story on it. It's out there by so many different entities now. The Washington Post has a big story on this. Uh, maybe the ESPN writers are currently working on it, or they're more, because they're based in New York, maybe they're more worried, uh, and rightfully so, uh, about the loss of life and the shooting in the subway system there earlier today. Um, None of those injuries were life-threatening in New York, from what I've seen. Just, just amazing. Um. But it is still appalling that this is the one thing that will anger owners enough to get another owner gone. Nothing else that's ever done. Just if if you cook the books and steal from us, then we're going to kill you. Right, right. Uh, Chael says, Commanders didn't do jack. It was apparently the Redskins. Still reads like BS, but if guilty, F. Snyder. Um, Tom says... I can't believe that the NFL would condone this. What is wrong with Roger Goodell and the rest of the owners? Why aren't people talking to Mark Murphy about this during his press conferences and asking him about his buddy over there in Washington? Does he still have ties to the Redskins? Uh, Mike says, uh, this is disgusting. We know the fans get screwed all the time. Now there's proof of it. I say it's time to put down our money and stop going to these damn games and stop supporting the NFL. Angel says, this is appalling. I'm reading the story now and reading the report. Of all the documentation, this makes me want to throw up. Um, Thomas writes, uh, Daniel Snyder's always been a scumbag. Now it's proof. He's a sexist. He's a harasser. And he's a thief. He should go to jail. And if he doesn't, it just proves the NFL is corrupt as the rest of them. Uh, Just, I mean, uh, we're just reacting. The world just reacting to all of this. Um. Uh, you know, I can go on and on. It, it's it's it is what it is at this point. If you want to read more about it, read more about it. Um, you can find it anywhere. Eight seven seven eight six seven sixteen seventy eight seven seven eight six seven sixteen seventy. Let's go to Tim listening to us in Sparta. Tim, how you doing, man? What's going on? Oh nope, Tim dropped off. Tim dropped off. Um, he brings up uh, the NFL PA and how if the owners were stealing. Oh, I, yeah, I can't even imagine this. The Because the NFL PA is going to claim that this was in some way, shape, or form money that was withheld via revenue share. So it was underreported, meaning that maybe the NFL is actually making more money than what they're claiming. Therefore, percentages and such that they base some of these salary caps on are being withheld, and therefore the players aren't getting it. I, you, you talk about opening an, an incredible can of worms. 
That's just, that's crazy. That's just, it's, you're right. You're 100% correct. And these are the things that when we get so mad at players for wanting the money and wanting the owners to open the books, and this is the reason you, you, you need transparency. And this could be, could be the beginning of the end of the NFL and antitrust. This could be that. This could be where lawmakers just finally say, you know what, enough, enough, you're done. You're lying. It's one thing when the players are claiming something and the owners are claiming claiming something and you're going with mediation. Now you're stealing from yourselves and you're not even, as an entity, you're not even cooperating with the investigation, which would then lead you to believe, if I'm an investigator and I go to Roger Goodell and I say, I want to see all the books. I want to see what's going on. I need to know this because you've got a franchise lying. Two sets of books. They're stealing from fans. They're stealing from one another. They're they're harassing the women in the office. They're they're cooking the books. This is an illegal franchise, basically. You've got it from the top down where guys may go to jail and you're not going to cooperate with the investigation, which now leads me to believe, what do you got to hide? What are you hiding? I've always said there was something that stunk out of that whole investigation, and the NFL was lying to you. And as fans, we don't give a damn because we can't get enough football. I'll be honest about that. But they were lying because the only guy that got busted was John Gruden, who doesn't even work for the organization. Are you kidding me? Eight seven six, and here's where the level of trust goes, or lack thereof. And Cheddar Balls brings up a good point over on the Bud Light live stream. He says lawmakers are going to do something about it. LOL, they're probably in on it. That's where our belief in society and the corruptibility of all of this is. We believe baseball players are dirty. We believe the NFL is is lying. That lawmakers, they're all on the take. I'd say I wrote this earlier today because I watched a, a, a news, and I hate to get way off on a tangent here, so I apologize. Please bear with me for a moment. But I wrote this earlier today. Uh, it, this morning I got up, and as I was watching a newscast, they were giving certain numbers. They were given numbers about COVID. They were given numbers about crime. They were given numbers numbers about auto theft. They were given numbers about shooting. And I'm thinking to myself, and then at the very end of this diatribe of what they're giving and has been spoon-fed to them by certain agencies rather than actually investigating it yourself, when you look at all of this, and then to say, yeah, here's the numbers, but I believe they're a lot higher because there's some things that we don't even believe is being reported or because they're not doing enough to actually categorize it this way or what. And I'm like, wait, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Your belief, first of all, no investigative reporting. It's literally what's being spoon-fed to you by the entity. None. There's nobody walking around the halls of City Hall anymore. There's nobody following police departments. There's nobody hanging out with legislators. There's nobody digging dirt. There's nobody looking for corruption. There's nothing. Reporting in this world sucks. As far as investigative journalism, in the words of, say, like Edward R. Murrow from the days gone by, 
And then you turn around and throw your, after you give the facts and then throw your own opinion in it to skew it the way you want it as a news entity. Now, talk shows, hosts, we grab an opinion, we put some facts behind it, we try to bolster our opinion, and then it's a discussion between you and I. This is like adults in a bar talking sports. But when you're talking about something like this, this is good investigative journalism. This is getting your hands on the letter to Congress. This is finding out exactly what's going on behind closed doors and digging to say, oh, my God, this is... This is not only appalling because of what you're doing to your own self behind closed doors with a terrible work environment and stealing and hirings and firings and your own inner circle, but you're stealing from your own fans. You're stealing from dead people. That's it's 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 uncomprehensible. Eight seven seven eight six seven sixteen seventy. Hang in there. More of the Bill Michael shows next. Covering Wisconsin sports like a blanket. This is the Bill Michael Show on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. The Bill Michael Show podcast. Listen, rate, subscribe.